0: This week on the show, we have Alan's recap of the ZFS User Conference, first impressions of OmniOS by a BSD user. We cover a setup of Nextcloud 13 on FreeBSD. There is an OpenBSD how-to of sorts on a fanless desktop computer. An intro to hardened BSD and Dragonfly BSD getting some SMP improvements. Something for everyone in this week's episode of BSD. Now. <laughs> BSD Now, episode 245, ZFS User Conference 2018. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're recording this episode on the 9th of May 2018. Oh, it's time for your weekly dose of the BSD battery recharge, um, starting with the ZFS User Conference Alan went to recently, a couple of weeks ago. So what happened there?
1: Yeah. Uh, So we had the uh, Datto, one of the companies that uses ZFS on Linux, hosted the ZFS user conference on April 19th and 20th at their office in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, So uh, attendees all met up for breakfast on the fourth floor of the office building there, uh, which is like a lunchroom type area. Uh, It was just outside the theater where we were going to have the conference where they have all the fancy projectors and lights and everything. Uh, it was interesting, the one whole wall of this uh, kind of lunch space uh, is all made out of um, the Lego plates, um, sure. and then they're color-coded buckets built into the wall with that type of Lego, or that color Lego in them, and then you people just build, draw things on the wall. There was some pixel art of like someone was working on a Mona Lisa type thing. (laughs) Okay. People spelling out the names of some of the places they're from or the offices they have and other interesting things. Just built out of Lego on the wall. That was cool. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: And we had a nice breakfast there. Um, And then it was time for the conference to start. Um, And it was led off by Matt Ahrens, the co-creator of Setafest. Uh, And he discussed, uh, his talk basically covered, first, the second most requested feature in ZFS ever, which is the ability to remove a disk. Uh, So he talked about device removal and how it works and how it came to be uh, and what the limitations are. Uh, And that feature is actually in FreeBSD now. Uh, It's in FreeBSD 12. Um, I have to double check. I think it was merged. So it will most likely be part of freebsd 11.2 when that comes out uh, in about a month and a half um, yep. so you'll be able to get your hands on that um, which allows you to uh it's called device evacuation because uh, it basically copies all the data off the device you want to remove and allocates it to other devices uh, basically with this indirection table saying you know this big range of blocks from that device is now over here and the next range is over here. And so when you go and try to read, you find out, oh, it's on a disk that's not here anymore, and then you go to the remap table, find out where it actually is, and go read it from there. Uh, But there's a second feature that changes that a bit, Um, and it basically means that when you modify data that used to be on the device that's been removed, uh, it doesn't keep using the redirection table, so as you touch the data, it eventually stops going through that table and gets written with its actual location on the, the disks that are staying. Uh, so it means the table that you use for this remapping keeps shrinking as you modify the data and so on, uh, mm-hmm. meaning it takes less and less memory. And over time, uh, you know, none of the data will still be pointing to a device that's not there anymore.
0: And when do you know that the device can be actually removed? Is there some kind of status output? Uh, So
1: like when you do the uh, the device removal command, it will do all the reallocation and you'll be able to remove the device. That uh, will take only as much time as it really takes to copy that data off that disk. And then you can remove the disk. Uh, But you'll see in your Zpool status, there will be a line saying the remapping uh, stuff is under this much of your memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then over time, that'll keep going down until it goes away. Okay, I will try it out with my test pool, <laughs> just in case. <laughs>
0: but it's good to know that this feature has been uh, finally uh, found its way into the code,
1: and yes. people can uh, use it. So it only works for um, like stripes, non redundant vdevs, mm-hmm. uh, and mirrors, uh, and it's not red a- set. Yeah, you cannot remove uh, an individual device from RAID-Z. It's uh, much more complicated and doesn't work as easily as in this case. Um, uh, so anyway, all the details are there. Uh, there will be slides and videos soon. Um, and then Matt pivoted to talk about the most requested feature in ZFS ever, uh, RAID-Z expansion, being able Ooh. to take your you know, RAID-Z2 of six disks and add a seventh disk to it, instead of having to you know, add six more whole disks or whatever. Uh, so he talked a bit about that, uh, showed his diagrams on how it will actually work, um, and then announced that he has a the first working prototype done, uh, and it's done on FreeBSD. Oh, nice, nice. Exciting uh, news. is is co-sponsored by Delphix, the company he works for, uh, the FreeBSD Foundation, and iX Systems.
0: Yeah, I heard in our last status call
1: that there is code available for review. Um, it's up on the code review site. It's not the final version, though. So if you do decide to test it, remember that your pool will be incompatible with the final version. And uh, you'll have to you know, send, receive your data and destroy the pool or something. Uh, uh, it's definitely an alpha quality thing. Uh, currently, it does it all in one big transaction group. So the whole system basically stops to do it for <laughs> however many hours it takes to copy the data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, In test setups in VMs with small disks, that doesn't take so long and it's not so bad, but it'd be impractical to do on a large system. Um, but this was just to get the initial part working and sort out uh, the bugs that we found so far. Uh, then it will move towards doing, you know, Bite sized chunks, so that your system is still usable while it's happening.
0: <laughs> yep. Okay, so there will be code coming in sooner rather than later, but let's yep. uh, give them some time to review.
1: There will be a more detailed update at BSDCAN.
0: Oh, and that's close. If I look at the calendar, it's just yeah, a couple of weeks away. A week, so. or,
1: uh, sorry, a month. Mm-hmm. Okay, doesn't start exciting times. <laughs> Uh, Then next up uh, was our friend uh, Calvin Hendricks Parker, uh, who uh, he presented how he solved all of his backup headaches using ZFS, uh, moving away from things like Amanda and Bacula and the complexity there to using ZFS uh, and showed off some of the bits that he's done for that. Uh, And I kept a couple of notes and uh, talked to him after and showed him a couple of uh, nice things he could do to save himself some work. And also mm-hmm. just uh, ways to make it slightly better or slightly faster.
0: Yeah, so remember, folks, this was a user conference, not a strictly developer conference. So users had the chance to talk about their ZFS setups and uh, what they're using it for.
1: Yeah, uh, and even you know, Matt's presentation was not so much the nitty-gritty of, of how device removal works, but more here's the feature that's coming and here are the restrictions and the use cases you would use it for and what you can't use it for and so on. Uh-huh. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, Steven Umbahager from OS Nexus, uh, talked about their product and how they manage basically a very large number of ZFS nodes, uh, and making them work together. Uh, and that's their product. Um, and then Micron, uh, which is a company that manufactures a lot of the flash you see in SSDs and other devices, but also the NAND you see on RAM and so on. Uh, they're one of only a very small number of companies that produce basically RAM and NAND and, and NVDIMS and 3D Crosspoint and all that. Um, so they talked a bit about the future of flash, where things are going, and they also talked about their new um Line of SSDs that are coming out, including a four terabyte SSD that uses eight kilobyte sectors, and a seven point five terabyte SATA SSD that uses sixteen kilobyte sectors. Oh uh, wow! And oh. so that led to uh, or it resulted in a discussion of those devices uh, after the talk was over, and how that may need to enhancements to ZFS to better support those uh, large sector sizes, uh, and large flash devices in general
0: mm, yeah i remember a couple of years ago when the smr discussion happened at one of the europeus cons. Um, how zfs could uh, be modified to support that properly so but yeah it's good to know that zfs is also looking at the future storage technologies and not just yes, uh, ignore those
1: kind of it actually relates more to one of the other talks but it fits to talk about it here um there is also the talk of the way metaslabs are generated and what happens when you actually do things like make a RAID Z2 out of 10 or 12 12 terabyte disks, or even larger disks that are starting to come out now. Uh, you know, you end up with metaslabs that are really, really big, and how we might need to actually um, so, by default, when you create a new pool, uh, each VDEV is split up in, or when you add a VDEV, uh, each VDEV is split up into two hundred segments. Mm-hmm. Um, that made sense in the past when you know your hard drives that varied from <laughs> hundreds of gigabytes to you know n terabytes. Uh, yeah. But now that we're into double digit terabytes, uh, that means each of those two hundred groups is two hundred fifty six megabytes or, or two hundred fifty six gigabytes or more. Um, hmm and they start to take up significant amounts of memory, uh, and we have you know six of those loaded at once or whatever, um, it comes down to, at some point, we might actually need to set a hard cap on the size of the MetaSlab and end up having more MetaSlabs.
0: Yeah. that's well, just moving the goalposts more and more, either from yeah. memory or from storage or from networking. It's, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Ah, because it's interesting we were talking about the other one is people often use ZFS in the cloud Um, and so in the cloud you often start with a a relatively small amount of storage and then expand it when you need it. Um, Whereas most ZFS arrays you start with so many disks and if you add more disks you're usually adding more VDEVs rather than changing the size of the existing disks. Or even if you are you're probably not going to swap all the disks many times per year. Whereas if you're using the cloud somewhere, you might actually expand the underlying block devices that back your pool many times in a year. Um, And so suddenly, if you divided the pool, or if they divided the device into 200 segments for Metaslabs, and then you expanded it, and then you expanded it again and again and again, uh, suddenly now you have, you know, a thousand metaslabs instead of 200. Uh, and it can get very interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so there might be certain tuning you could do to kind of hint that, while I'm creating the pool at, you know, it's only 100 gigs, I do plan to expand this pool to be, you know, a couple times larger than that in the future uh, and maybe start with uh, a number of metaslabs that's lower, predicting that you're going to keep doubling the number of metaslabs a bunch of times. Mm.
0: OK that's uh, future work
1: yep uh, and then uh, Alec Pinchuk uh, from Datto talked about uh, pool layout considerations again because this is a user conference it was uh, geared towards things that users uh, need to know so we talked a bit more about what the different pool layouts are and what the you know if you have 36 disks and uh, you're going to raid them up there are, quite a few different ways you could do that. And what, you know, ones that make sense and ones that don't, and what the pros and cons of each of those are.
0: I remember a certain book uh, someone wrote about ZFS where there are some configurations been discussed.
1: Yeah, there was a big table. I spent a lot of time making my table. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And then Tony Hunter from Lawrence Livermore National Labs uh, talked about the actual release process for ZFS on Linux. Um, what actually goes into making a release of ZFS for Linux. And uh, that was interesting for me just because of how different it is from how, you know, FreeBSD and Illumos do it.
0: Yeah. I I had also a couple of interesting discussions with the ZFS um, on a ZFS training I just did this week um, with the Linux people who were there who wanted to use, of course, ZFS on Linux. And we found out during the uh, course of the training that some of the features aren't yet on uh, the same level as FreeBSDs.
1: Right. like I know uh, ZFS allow, I think, is not even a thing on ZFS on Linux.
0: Yeah. And also someone had used Debian, which is also a Bit more behind than the other Linux distributions, so yeah.
1: Um, it, especially it was like if you're using the Ubuntu that bundled ZFS, I think it's uh, ZFS for Linux 0.6.5, whereas yeah. current is like 0.7.8, and there's a lot of difference in there.
0: Yeah, we, we had some things um, uh, different than what previously does when we did ZFS sends. So on Debian, it, it never stopped the send and. It was just 2.3 megabytes in size, but we then we we send it again, and then it grew to 4.6 uh, times the, the original. So it was unclear why the data set on the receiving side would now be double the size than on the sending side. But that's a different discussion.
1: Uh, the so, compression settings, uh, a couple other things. Could be, uh, yeah. When it's that small, the slop, it's, it can even just mend, depend on what their uh, VDEV layout is. Yeah.
0: okay but there are different uh, release processes uh,
1: in In the the, uh, downstream Um, and then finally uh, Tom Caputi who's the uh, developer at Datto who's working on the encryption stuff uh, he presented Helping Developers Help You uh, which was some guidance for users on submitting bug reports uh, included looking at their GitHub PRs and some of the examples of a good bug report versus a bad one and uh, how that affects how quickly the bugs get fixed
0: What's the deal with ZFS encryption? When's it landing?
1: It's not really safe in Linux yet, so it's not. Oh. There are early ports of it to, to BSD, but you know Needs you don't want to use it yet. Okay. Yeah. Uh then we had a cocktail party followed by dinner, and that was very nice, just getting to talk with people about ZFS and other stuff. Okay.
0: Uh, That's good to mingle a bit with the uh, attendees also, uh, not just uh, listen to the talks all the time.
1: Exactly. And we stayed uh, relatively late into the night, and then I went uh, back to my hotel room and went to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then the next day, uh, we started off uh, after another nice breakfast. Uh, We had a a talk by uh, Jervin Rial from Percona, uh, who presented ZFS and MySQL on Linux the sweet spots uh, mm-hmm. so he was doing performance testing on AWS instances of xfS or ext one of them one of the default Linux file systems versus ZFS uh, and you know as Matt pointed out um, you know ZFS is doing a lot more work than the other file systems so you can't expect it to be faster uh, but He did find a couple of weird things, uh, including when he used uh, a slug. It wasn't making as big a difference as he thought it should and so on. Uh, Anyway, it led to quite a bit of back and forth discussion. And um, it'll be interesting to see if in the end this results in some enhancements to certain things in ZFS. uh, Or if it ends up uh, just resulting in some better advice on how to tune ZFS for uh, modern versions of MySQL, uh, you know, things have changed quite a bit since Oracle's original guidance, and uh, Open ZFS is a lot different than uh, sure. Oracle ZFS nowadays. Yep. Uh, but it can the the part that complicates it is it really depends on your SQL workload what certain settings make sense or not. Um, and yeah, is it more reading by. or writing? So, uh, at some point, I'm looking at actually. Uh, maybe, I don't know when I'd have time, but it'd be nice to actually do something similar with FreeBSD on EC2. Uh, Again, identical machines comparing, say, UFS and ZFS and uh, doing some tweaking to see uh, if by default there are certain bottlenecks that we can adjust around and to also see um, when you're using compression, does the block size advice actually end up working against you? Does using a larger block size and getting higher compression ratio end up giving you lower latency uh, than having to worry about the right amplification and so on? But again, yeah. it can very much depend on your workload on how much you're modifying existing records versus inserting new records. Mm-hmm. One of and our... So depending uh, on your workload, it can make a very big difference on what setting is to make the most sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, one of uh, the attendees wanted to try out ZFS on uh, or in combination with Ceph. So that because he had Ceph already running and wanted to uh, just add ZFS to that mix. Um, I'll try to keep in touch and see how that goes because it's a good combination on something that's I don't think so popular, but it's definitely doable. And then someone presented something about a Z-Standard thing?
1: Uh, yep, then I gave my talk about Z-Standard. Uh, it was interesting because I know uh, that the MySQL talk before and I think one of the other ones before it also mentioned Z-Standard and, and <laughs> interested in that work. Uh, and then actually the talk after mine also was like, yes, I want that stuff. Is it ready yet? <laughs> and the crowd went wild after you finished? Or... How was the uh, reaction? Not exactly, but there definitely was interest uh, in it, and uh, I'm. it's mostly done now. Uh, I need to s- do a minor little fix-up for channel program stuff that happened after it landed in FreeBSD after I had already written most of the Zed Sander stuff, and so oh. it just needs a little bit of touching up there, uh, but currently there are no known bugs.
0: Okay, so, we'll uh, give it a try and yes, see. Uh,
1: in a little while, hopefully, that can land in head in time uh, for BSD CAN.
0: Oh, no pressure, but that would be amazing. It's just I just want to see it in action on some of the, the data I have. Uh, yeah, cool. Definitely good work. I look forward to that. And I'm probably not the only one.
1: Uh, and then finally, there was a talk by Eric Spruill uh, from Circonis, which is like a graphing stats company. Um, and he gave his talk, which is called Thank You ZFS. Uh, basically saying, you know, thank you to ZFS and the whole community because their product wouldn't really be possible with something other than ZFS. Um, and then uh, broke into a bit more of a user story you gave a talk last year at the user conference about the problems they were having with uh, fragmentation because they were writing very, very small amounts of data to a lot of files constantly. Mm. Um, So in ZFS, those all get batched up in a nice one big write and it'll be fine, except they would collapse some of the data but not all of the data, right? So imagine they write to like a daily file, a weekly file, and a monthly file Mm -hmm. Well, they average out the daily stuff and free that space. But they don't free mm-hmm. the, you know, five blocks they got written to the monthly and the one block that got written to the, um, or the weekly and the monthly or whatever. So they'd end up with all these little holes of free space but no nice big fat chunk of free space. Mm. And then when ZFS is trying to then write a big chunk of data at the end of a transaction group, it's like, oh, there is no giant contiguous amount of free space. I need to uh, break this up uh, into Only, little pieces, which actually yeah. takes up more space and makes things worse and slower. Hmm. And, yeah. Uh, so it's we got like some on that with some changes they made to the application uh, and how that's uh, helped them a lot. Uh, and in the further discussion, we also saw some interesting bits about um, how the collapsing of data in the Metaslabs works. So when a f- MetaSlab is too fragmented, we don't load it and consider using it for allocating space out of. Uh, that's uh, an improvement from a couple of years ago. If you remember the free space histogram feature? Uh, yeah. I think it's a feature flag. Anyway, the idea with that was this way we could easily tell, all right, we have these 200 slabs. Uh, that one's 90% fragmented. How about I don't go look for a bunch of free space in there uh, when this one over here is 2% fragmented, uh, which is a good improvement. But... Only when you actually load the MetaSlab does it consider collapsing a bunch of... So if you had a big block and you allocated it and then you freed it by punching holes in it and you keep punching holes in it, eventually almost all of it is probably free, mm-hmm. but you haven't realized that it's not actually a bunch of 4K free blocks. It's a big contiguous chunk of free space and you have to do coalesce it. Um, that only happens in ZFS when you load the MetaSlab. But if it's 95% fragmented, you'd never load it because you'd never want to consider using it until maybe you're almost uh, completely out of space or whatever. Mm. Um, And so it it was never getting coalesced. And it's like, it's actually, there's a bunch of contiguous free space there. We just didn't realize it and uh, might result in some
0: more patches to ZFS as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Once you expose um, it to more people and use cases, the more um, yeah, problems, if you want to call it that, um, you can find that you wouldn't find on your own because you have different use cases sometimes. So, yeah, these user conferences definitely help uh, the developers mm-hmm. also to see what uh, interesting uh, uses their file system has or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, like I think if uh, the Zirconis people hadn't come, I would have never heard of their issue and never spent time thinking about it. Yeah.
0: And also seeing what companies are using ZFS. It's Sometimes if you're an open source project, then you're like, hmm, who are my users? Who's using my system and is happy with it? Or if there's an issue, uh, tell us about it. And conferences give that. Uh, and also people can talk amongst themselves who would normally not... Uh, talk about because they don't know what other people are using. So it's always good to bring your people together who love a certain uh, system or, I don't know, code base, let's say. And yeah, so that's
1: what a conference is for,
0: among other things. And then there was uh, pretty much... uh, So will there be uh, talk recordings and slides later? Yes,
1: Uh, it was all recorded and hopefully the video will be up relatively soon. All
0: right, Then we can... uh, rewatch that and some of the uh, talks mm-hmm. information that's been given. All right. Um, we also have other news this week. We have a report uh, or an initial OmniOS impression uh, by a BSD user. So this one is over at linuxquestions.org which sounds interesting but it's just uh, the space for the It's
1: just um, a forum the, basically.
0: Uh, yeah. So this one goes, um, I had been using FreeBSD as my main web server operating system since 2012, and I liked it so much that I even contributed money and code to it. However, since the FreeBSD guys and gals decided to install anti-tech feminism, I have been considering to move away from it for quite some time now. Uh, As my growing needs require stronger hardware, it was finally time to rent a new server. I do not intend to run FreeBSD on it, although the most obvious choice would be OpenBSD. I run it on another server, and it works just fine. I plan to have a couple of databases running on the new machine, and database throughput has never been one of the OpenBSD's strong points. This is my chance to give Elomos another try. As neither Wi-Fi nor desktop environments are relevant on a No X11 server, the server-focused OmniOS seemed to fit my needs. So the current uh, or to-be-phased-out setup on FreeBSD looks like this. Uh, so there's Apache 2.4 with SSL support, uh, running five websites currently on six domains, both with HTTP and HTTPS. Uh, there is a somewhat large, uh, tiny, tiny RSS installation from Git, updated via our cron job, and SBCL running a daily cron job on the Web2 RSS parser, as well as an FTP server uh, for sharing stuff with friends an IRC bouncer and MariaDB as well as Postgres for some of the hosted services. So this is a typical uh, web server and web application setup. So it continues with, I would not consider anything of that too esoteric for a modern operating system, uh, since I was not really using anything mod rewrite related or uh, anything like that. I was certainly ready to replace Apache 2.4 by Nginx, remembering that the prepackaged Apache 2.4 and FreeBSD did not support HTTPS out of the box, and had ended up installing it from ports. That is the only change in my setup uh, which I'm actively planning. And uh, so here's what I noticed. First impressions? Hooray! A BSD bootloader. Finally, an operating system without grub. i made my experiences with that and don't want to repeat them too often. So that's uh, positive here. It is weird that the installer won't accept mydomain.org as a hostname, but SendMail complains that mydomain is not a valid hostname right from the start. So OmniOS sent me into maintenance mode to fix that. A good start, right? So, the first completely new thing is that I had to find out on my new shiny toy how to change the hostname. There is no rc.conf and hostname mydomain.org was only valid for one login session. I found out that the hostname was to be changed in three different files under etc on Solaris. third one did not even exist for me. Changing other two files seems to have solved the problem for me. Okay, so that's... Uh, a bit different from your uh, operating system uh, where you came from. So that needs to be uh, relearned or adjusted. Random findings. Uh, I was wondering how many resources my mostly idle web server was using. I always thought Solaris was a lot of fat, but it still felt fast to me. All right, we're in Unix land and we need to think outside of the box. This table was really helpful. Although a number of things are different between OmniOS and SmartOS, I found out that whatever stat tools, so there are different ones that end with stat, uh, that do uh, what top does. I could probably just install top from one of the package managers, uh, but I failed to find a reason to do so. I had 99% idle CPU and RAM, that's all I wanted to know. And trying to set up TWTXT informed me that Python 3.6 from package in expects uh, language and LCL to be set. Weird, did FreeBSD do that for me? It's been a while. At least that was easy to fix. Uh, so there's also SMF, so Solaris' version of init. It uh, was confusing a little bit, apparently. It has levels similar to Gentoo's open uh, OpenRC, but it mostly shuts up during the boot process. Stuff from package source like NGINX comes up with a description how to set up the particular service, uh, but I should probably read more about it. What if one day I install a package which is not made ready for OmniOS? I have to find out how to write SMF scripts, but that should not be my highest priority. The OmniOS doc- documentation uh, talks about a lot of, uh, of uh, zones, of course. If I understand that correctly, mostly equals FreeBSD jails. And yeah, that's pretty much it with a little bit more uh, on top of that. Uh, this could be my chance to try to respect a better separation between my various services if my laziness won't take over again. Ah, yes, uh, that's... Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, and OmniOS's default shell, rather un-Unixy, seems to be the bash. And there's an update here. I was informed about a mistake here. The default shell is uh, KSH93. Uh, mm-hmm. There are bogus .bashrc files lying around though. Okay. Uh, So somewhere in between, my SSHD had a hiccup, or at least logging into it uh, took longer than usual. If that happens again, I should investigate. And the conclusion of all of that so far from the first uh, steps is that by the time of me writing this, I have a basic web server with an awesome performance and a lot of applications ready to be configured only one click away. The more I play with it, the more I have the feeling that I have missed a lot while watching my time with FreeBSD or by wasting my time. Well, if you call that wasting, for a system that is said to be dying, OmniOS feels well thought and, when equipped with a reasonable package management, comes with everything I need to reproduce my FreeBSD setup without losing functionality. And it closes with, I'm looking forward to what will happen with it. So yeah, sometimes um, it's interesting to, if you're looking at other systems, how you miss certain things that you're using on your current system. and um, then it's like, ah, why it's not available on that other system, and it's just made my uh, day a little bit more difficult because it's not part of my muscle memory yet. So, um, yeah, it's good to see a, a migration story, and if there's update an update available, then uh, we'll cover that in the future episode as well. Yep.
1: This week's episode of BSC Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Uh, head over to digitalocean.com and check them out. But if you really want uh, in on the goodness, go over to do.co slash bsdnow and uh, you'll be able to sign up for a $100 credit for 60 days. Uh, so you'll be given $100 of play money uh, to try out DigitalOcean and get hooked like the rest of us already are.
0: <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Because it's just a, a good amount of uh, services around that, it gives you monitoring right out of the box. You can um, define custom networking and firewalls between your uh, droplets. You can run uh, one-click applications like a LAMP stack or if you want to run a MongoDB cluster, then they get um, give you the possibility to start some pre-installed software with your operating system of choice. And it also allows you to share your operating systems or your um, little droplets with your friends. So you can say, oh, this is now our TeamSpeak server, but I'm the only one who's seeing the actual bills for it. So that's the team functionality there. And they also announced Kubernetes support in the coming soon uh, section on their uh, website. There's an early access request button if you're on Kubernetes and want to try it out. Um, This will be available throughout September, apparently. So you can look out for that. And uh, while you're waiting, you should check out the other features that DigitalOcean provides. So, the spaces, for example, if you're looking for an object store or the, the backup functionality, it's just we can just
1: talk or, about or features. the block storage. Remember how we were just talking about how you could create a ZFS pool that's only, say, 200 gigabytes. So, you're only paying $20 a month, but then later you might need it to be a terabyte, and then later you might need it to be. 7.5 terabytes, and then later you might need it to be 13 terabytes, or maybe you need it to be 16 terabytes. Yeah, You can do that with the block storage.
0: Definitely. So yeah, you'll be well prepared and for future... With
1: the new device removal feature, if you used multiple block storages, each of, you know, so many gigabytes or whatever, uh, and then eventually didn't need the space anymore, you could remove one of the block storages, remap all the data onto one of the existing ones that you're keeping and get rid of one of them, therefore lowering your monthly bill once you don't need the data anymore.
0: Yeah, So, but with the comprehensive monitoring, you can also see how much traffic your uh, little machine or maybe not so little machine is receiving, how CPU and RAM are going without uh, having to log into the machine and running top or any other uh, monitoring tool. Yeah, so check out DigitalOcean and use the coupon code Alan mentioned and uh, give it a will. So next up, uh, we have the Open Source Hardware Camp 2018 with a couple of uh, BSD talks, apparently. Hmm. So this is over at, uh, is it
1: oshug.org? Yep, Open Source Hardware we- User Group. Hmm?
0: Okay, uh, so this one goes, uh, Hi all, I'm pleased to announce that we have 10 talks and 7 workshops confirmed. So this is the um, conference in Lincoln, UK. And um, that's the Open Source Hardware Camp 2018 uh, with the possibility of one or two more. And the registration is now open. So um, tell me again when that conference is. Ah, here it is. Um, June 30th and uh, 1st of July. Okay, so for the first time ever, uh, we will be hosting OSH Camp in Lincoln and a huge uh, thank for uh, Sarah Markall for helping to make this happen. As in previous years, there will be a social event on a Saturday evening and we have a room booked at the Wig and Mitter. Food will be available, okay, so people won't starve. There will be likely a few of us meeting for pre-conference drinks on the Friday evening also. And details on the program can be found below. As well uh, as ever, we have an excellent mix of topics being covered. So, uh, let's look for the BSD events here or the BSD talks. Uh, let me do a quick search here. Ah, there is a talk called an introductory workshop to NetBSD on embedded platforms. So, that's. um Covering cross-compilation support with build.sh, uh, file tamper detection and execution prevention with exec, as well as high-level access to subsystems, um, exploring the GPIO bus, for example, via Lua, and rapid development with Rump kernel.
1: Oh, that sounds interesting as a mm-hmm. workshop. And that's uh, presented by our friend uh, Seven Zhangian.
0: Ah, okay, the usual suspects. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's excellent. Uh, that there will be more talks uh, about NetBSD. Very nice. So, yeah, if you can make that um, date, then why not go to the Open Source Hardware Camp 2018? So, time for the news roundup this week. We have a how-to here. Nextcloud 13 on FreeBSD. So, that sounds interesting. Uh,
1: So, this is over on the blog of uh, Vermidin, who's uh, done quite a bit of stuff uh, over the years. Oh, yeah. They might actually been somehow involved in the uh, BADM script for a while as well. Anyway, Yeah, I think I uh, did the original one, write,
0: but uh, yeah, this one is a good how-to about
1: Nextcloud on FreeBSD. Yeah. So they write, Today I would like to share a setup of Nextcloud 13 running on a FreeBSD system. To make things more interesting, I'd be running inside a FreeBSD jail. I will not describe the actual Nextcloud setup itself, uh, as there's lots of blog posts on that already. Uh, but so the official Nextcloud 13 documentation says... Uh, the recommended way to set it up is using MySQL or MariaDB, uh, PHP 7 or newer, and Apache 2.4 with mod PHP. However, uh, they prefer Postgres over MariaDB, and so they're going to do it that way, uh, and they're going to run Nginx instead of Apache. So they set up Postgres 10.3, uh, PHP 7.2.4, uh, Nginx 1.12.2, and Memcache 1.5.7. They say the memcache subsystem is uh, least important. Uh, it can easily be changed into something more like a Redis or whatever. Uh, they prefer not to use any third-party tools for FreeBSD jails, uh, so they did vanilla jails. Uh, this is not because they're bad or anything like that. It's just, uh, you know, there are many choices, and it's what is provided in generic is good enough. Mm. Uh, and they wanted the tutorial to be about NextCloud, not about a jail management tool. So, on the host, uh, they started up by setting up their, uh, some sysctl variables, uh, allowing the jail to do raw sockets, so it'll be able to do ping and so on, and to allow the ch chflags uh, command inside the jail. Mm, yep. Uh, so, they set that up. Uh, and then they used uh, rctl. They actually enabled that, uh, which allows uh, you to limit um, What the uh, jail can use as far as resources. Uh, And so then they looked at this. uh, So they say the complete jail after finishing installation uh, takes up less than 800 megabytes. If you move uh, some not needed parts from the install, you can get it even smaller. And then uh, the ports tree took about 1.6 gigabytes of space. That, yeah, it's a bit uh, bigger. <laughs> uh, sorry, the port street took 700 and something megabytes, but in total, it made the jail 1.6 gigabytes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did, he used his uh, laptop for the host in this uh, example, and that's why the jail is configured to use the wireless interface and uh, internal address. To distinguish the commands I typed on the host from the ones on the system, uh, they varied the prompts uh, that you'll see. Uh, so to say, you know, host or root at Nextcloud, which is the jail. And then they basically walk through uh, starting things up and looking at things. Mm-hmm. Creating data sets for the jail, uh, you know, setting the special record size for the Postgres database uh, for to avoid the write amplification, downloading the FreeBSD base system and extracting it into the jail, making a jail.conf, uh, Enabling jails on startup. Uh, hacking up their host file so they can have a, a short name for the jail. And, uh, that's about it. And then, uh, in the RC.conf, uh, they set the, uh, set up Postgres and PHP and Memcache and NGINX. Uh, disabled send mail, set a couple other variables, uh, and they were off to the races.
0: Yeah, it's all super detailed, and you can compare the output from each command to yours if, in case there's some error. Uh, so that's definitely a good walkthrough to get uh, the it next cloud covers, running. Uh,
1: choosing whether you want the rolling release or the quarterly packages for FreeBSD. Uh, updating packages uh, using the ports tree if you want to custom compile stuff. And... Uh, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's uh, very detailed and covers everything. So if you wanna try out Nextcloud, this is definitely going to cover all of the steps.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: give it a try, and also
0: check out the other tutorials. me personally, I'm checking out the um, the most recent one about MongoDB and comparing it uh, with my setup on the Big Data Cluster. I wish I had done it on FreeBSD, but I was in a bit of a rush, so I um, uh, was more interested in getting it running in the first place. But now that I know that it's running on FreeBSD, I might as well switch next uh, time. So yeah, check out the, the blog and uh, try it out for yourself. Yep. Uh, our next item is OpenBSD on my fanless desktop computer, which is something that's been requested a couple of times. Uh, it starts with, you asked me about my setup. Here you go. I've been using OpenBSD on servers for years as a web developer, but never had a chance to dive into a system administration before. If you appreciate the simplicity of OpenBSD and you have it, uh, give it a try on your desktop. Bear in mind, this is a relatively cheap ergonomic setup because all I need is Xterm with Vim and Firefox. I don't care about CPU, GPU performance or mobility too much, but I want a large screen and a good keyboard. And it lists yep. the uh, items so they, and price. Uh, they
1: bought a Zotac Nano B, uh, kind of mini PC, uh, 16 gigs of RAM for it, a 250 gig SSD, a Samsung 850 Evo, Uh, They bought a 23.8-inch IPS Full HD screen. Uh, They spent uh, quite a bit of money on their fancy keyboard and so on. Uh, And then they bought a trackball mouse and had about an $1,100 US computer.
0: Yeah, and you can see a picture of the setup. uh, And uh, they mentioned that this how-to was also written on that. So, um, for OpenBSD itself, uh, I tried a few times to install OpenBSD on my MacBooks. I heard some models are compatible with it, but in my case it was a bit of a fiasco, uh, thanks to NVIDIA and Broadcom. Ah, well, that's why I bought a new computer, so just to be able to run this wonderful operating system. Now I run stable on my desktop and servers. Uh, Servers are supposed to be reliable, that's obvious, why not run current on a desktop? Because stable is shipped every six months, and I know that it's often enough for me. I prefer slow fashion. And, of course, there's more information. If you check out the full blog, then you can see more details and pictures how that uh, has been set up. And it's, again, a fanless computer, so you won't hear any uh, noises uh, coming from your winning uh, from inside the, the case or
1: something. Yep, that's Very a, nice. that's a, an i3-7100U So that's a dual core 2.4 gigahertz.
0: Mm-hmm. Well you can do some pretty good work on that That's not too too slow
1: yep. And you can see here's a picture of it It's uh, nice and small Sporting a nice run BSD sticker <laughs> Very cool Yeah. Uh, so this week's episode is also brought to you by iax systems. Head over to iaxsystems dot com slash BSD now and get in touch with them about your BSD server needs or open source server needs. Even if you have exactly to be yep. one of those people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, because they have built uh, a lot of systems for customers who had exactly. Um, wishes about their setup and sometimes weren't sure about uh, certain components or whether uh, a
1: certain hardware will be supported by... Yeah, so it turns out hardware is important and <laughs> having someone that knows what they're doing with the hardware is important. Uh, so you describe to them what you want to use the server for and they will help you pick the best hardware for the job because they basically live and breathe hardware every day is what they do. Uh I don't. So (laughs) I want to be able to have someone I can go to and trust that they will uh, build the right thing for me and not, you know, I don't end up with any headaches. Uh, Yeah. And they do that. And because they do that, they uh, also back it all, right? Like, so after I help, they help me design the right system and So on, they also support it for the after that. So you know, if there is a problem, you know, a disk fails after a couple of months or whatever, uh, then uh, a quick support ticket, and uh, I give them the address of the data center, and they ship the new drive and the uh, return shipping label to ship the dead one back to them, and so on, and it's all just taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike some other companies, the white glove support starts before you buy anything and goes all the way through. Yeah,
0: this is some of the differentiators that uh, iXsystems is doing for the customers and making sure that the hardware that they ship has been tested and is not arriving and just works for one day or something. So that's certainly something they do for their customers. And it's not only just big servers. It also uh, could be a Freenas Mini or the Mini XL for your home or your office needs to backup your files, of course, on ZFS-backed storage, so you can use all the goodies that we mentioned in the show, and you can use FreeNAS, the um, more web-centered ZFS configuration tool if you don't want to spend too much time on the command line, or that scares you, or I don't know why, but uh, FreeNAS is definitely a good tool if you want to run your own uh, little NAS at home or in the um, enterprise.
1: And the other thing IX does is represent BSD at conferences and trade shows all over the world. Uh, so, our friend Michael Dexter uh, just wrote a blog post on IX's site about his trip to NAB. Uh, That's
0: the national uh, broadcasting and something. Uh, yes, it's, right? oh. it's
1: uh, video, and broadcast video and broadcasting. Stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it turns out that results in a lot of video that needs to be stored. Uh, Sometimes in, you know, uncompressed formats that take up a lot of space. And Uh, what file system are you using for that? Yeah. And so, as Dexter says, you know, he quite literally grew up in a Hollywood production studio. So, it was great to see all the uh, stuff that he was used to seeing and so on. Uh, But uh, interesting to talk to people about, you know, how modern movies rely on technology directly derived uh, from things like aeronautics and supercomputing and uh so on but yeah you may not have known but bullet time the first uh the kind of fancy animation from the first matrix film was actually rendered on freebsd uh and it's no surprise that open ZFS is very popular in hollywood for storing video uh whether that's you know the new star wars movies or uh something else you know i bet mm-hmm. the uh This Toy Story people wish that they had been using ZFS for that. (laughs) Yeah, way back when. (laughs) Yep. So lots of notes there about their trip to Vegas for that. Uh, And they show here they have a FreeNAS set up to display uh, the single pane of glass interface. You can see everything that's going on on the (laughs) FreeNAS. Yeah, that's certainly nice.
0: And also, IX system is not just going to many of these conferences, they're also sponsoring many of these conferences, like the upcoming BSD can. so mm-hmm. that's also um, their way of contributing back. So, you know, uh, not only are they
1: to... a great hardware provider, uh, but they're also keeping important open source projects like FreeNAS and uh, TrueOS alive, uh, but they also give back to the community.
0: Yep, so check them out, give them a call if you're in the need for a new server, and um, let them build you a good uh, solution. All right. Um, We have another item in our um, news roundup in uh, that regard that we have an introduction to Harden BSD world. So that's uh, over also at vermaiden.wordpress.com. So uh, twice on this show, that's okay. Um, it starts with hardened BSD, a security-enhanced fork of FreeBSD, which happened in 2014. Hardened BSD is implementing many exploit mitigation and security technologies on top of FreeBSD, which all started with implementation of address based layout randomization, aka ASLR. And the fork has been created for ease of development. Uh, so to cite the hardened BSD web page, uh, uh, here is the quote. Harden BSD aims to implement innovative exploit mitigation and security solutions for the FreeBSD community. Uh, Harden BSD takes a holistic approach to security by hardening the system and implementing exploit mitigation technologies. Most FreeBSD enthusiasts know MFSBSD project by Martin Matuszka and uh, the FreeBSD system loaded completely into memory. Yeah, that's helping you with... Um, Saving your pool sometimes, or just getting the system um, repaired in case there's something wrong.
1: Remote rescue system, things like that.
0: Yeah, and so the MFSBSD synonym for the hardened BSD world is SoloBSD. Over at SoloBSD.org, which is based on hardened BSD sources, so there's already uh, downstream uh, distros uh, using that. Uh, one may ask how hardened BSD project compared to more well-known for its security OpenBSD system, and it is a very important question. The OpenBSD developers try to write good code without dirty hacks for performance or other reasons. Clean and secure code is most important for OpenBSD, and the OpenBSD project even made security audit of all OpenBSD code available line by line. This was easier to achieve in FreeBSD or HardenBSD because OpenBSD code base is about 10 times smaller. This uh, also has other implications and uh, the possibilities uh, opening with that. While FreeBSD and HardenBSD offer many new features like mature SMP subsystem, even with some NUMA support, the ZFS file system, the Geom storage framework, Beehive virtualization, VirtualBox options, and many other modern features, the OpenBSD remains classic Unix with uh, the UFS file system and very theoretical SMP support. The BMM project tries to implement new hypervisor in the OpenBSD world, but because of lack of support for graphics, uh, it's for OpenBSD, Illumos, and Linux currently. And you will not virtualize Windows or Mac OS X there yet. Uh, but I'm convinced that there will be something happening soon. Um, just looking at what they presented at uh, BeehiveCon in uh, at AsiaBSDCon in March. So um, back to the article. This is also only um, the virtualization option for OpenBSD as there are no jails on OpenBSD. Wait, aren't there? Oh well. Um, current Beehive implementation allows one even to boot latest Windows 2019 technology preview. So a hardened BSD project uh, is FreeBSD system code base with lots of security mechanisms and mitigations that are not available on FreeBSD. For example, the entire lib32 tree has been disabled by default on hardened BSD to make it more secure. Uh, also libressl is the default SSL library on hardened BSD although if you watched the last episode of BSD now you saw yeah, the had new had to do that because it wasn't working. Yeah. So yeah, that uh, is unfortunate but state of the current um, play. So, there's uh, a little comparison between LibreSSL and OpenSSL vulnerabilities, but um, that's pretty much uh, for you to read. Uh, on uh, one might see c BSD as FreeBSD being successfully pulled up to the OpenBSD level, at least that is the goal, but as FreeBSD has tons more code and features, it will be harder and longer process to achieve that goal. And it closes with, as I do not have that much competence on the security field, I will just repost a comparison from the Harden BSD project versus other BSD systems. And you can find that in our show notes, as well as on the Harden BSD website. Okay, that's the uh, article we have here. Uh, the next up article that we have is for the people who always wanted to run their own Git server, because here's a little how-to that we found. Uh, It's simply titled Running My Own Git Server.
1: Yes, Uh, so this is interesting, you know. uh, GitHub happens to have snow days every once in a while, and sometimes you still want to have your own stuff. Uh, So yes, this article is predominantly based on the work of uh, Hilcho Postuma, uh, who you should uh, read because I would have spent far more time doing this if uh, it wasn't for their stuff. But anyway... Going on, They say, uh, since I started university three years ago, I started using lots of services from lots of different companies. The cloud trend led me to believe that I wanted other people to, uh, to look after my data for me. Turns out I was wrong. Since finding myself uh, loving the ethos of OpenBSD, I found myself wanting to apply this ethos to the services I use as well. Not only is it important for me because of the security benefits, but also because I like the minimalist style that OpenBSD has. This is the first in a mini-series documenting my move from bloated, hosted, sometimes proprietary services to minimal, well-known, free, self-hosted services. Uh, so in this case, they have uh, the OpenBSD HTTPD, uh, Acme client, which is the Let's Encrypt client for OpenBSD, git, cgit, and slowcgi. Uh, so, setting up uh, their HTTP server is pretty easy. They just enable httpd and slow CGI and enable them. And then in their HTTP config, they just set up git.example.com, listen on an IP address, and um, set their script to be the CGit uh, socket or command, uh, and set up slow CGI to be able to run the CGI. So now, the uh, HTTPD is configured to run CGit. Once it's uh, been configured, then they just have to go over to CGit, uh, edit the CGit RC, set up their header and footer, um, and configure all the bits for that, including the path to the repo, uh, set the permissions on the directories, uh, get it going, and then they start it up. And now you can uh, point yourself at the website, and be able to see Git. Hmm, Uh, So they have a repo that they can point their Git client at and check things in and out.
0: Nice, yeah. If you want to uh, share that with a couple of friends or definitely share the code with a couple of friends, then yeah, this is a nice and not too difficult and long setup to get that running. So, after this little how-to, we have the Beastie Bits for this week. My PenguinCon 2018 schedule by none other than Michael W. Lucas, of course. Uh, Regular PenguinCon.
1: PenguinCon was the weekend that just ended. Oh, (laughs) so we were maybe a little late getting here this one. uh, But just to rub in all the things that you missed, uh, (laughs) Friday it started with the LN2 uh, ice cream uh, so it's uh, liquid nitrogen ice cream. Ooh, no. uh, I kind of wish I got to do that. Uh, and then <laughs> there was a, a panel that evening called The Internet Before the Web, uh, which is interesting. Then Saturday, uh, Michael kept himself quite busy by giving an hour-long talk about the BSD operating systems in 2018. Uh, then, no, he actually scheduled for two hours being at the liquid nitrogen purple haze ice cream booth. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Uh, then at noon he did another talk on large scale SSH using keys and certificates Uh, then at 1 o'clock he sat on the senior sysadmin panel Uh, and then uh, crossing genres a little bit, uh, at 3 o'clock he sat on the writing group panel Uh, and then at 4 o'clock he did a reading uh, in the writer's block area Uh, and then at 6 o'clock he did another panel on writing productivity uh, and then at 7 o'clock was critiquing without alienating the author. <laughs> yeah, he could have used that course before working with me. <laughs> 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 I'm oh well. teasing. It. I'm teasing. Michael and I got along very nicely. Uh, and then 8 o'clock was uh, making a living as a mid-list writer. Uh, and then on Sunday, more ice cream and the social media marketing. Mm-hmm. Okay. That will be... Uh, For the first time ever, none of my talks overlapped the liquid nitrogen ice cream sessions. (laughs) Uh, This could not have been easy to achieve and I sincerely appreciate the efforts to accommodate my uh, personality defects. Quirks, quirks. There are quirks. Uh, This is defects. (laughs) He tried to cross it out but it didn't do it. (laughs) Okay. um,
0: Maybe the talks will uh, appear on the usual video sites for you to relive some of those of course not the ice cream sessions uh, but at least the talks could be uh, available later on so if that will happen then we'll mention it All right, uh, that's one part of the news uh, but we also have sick action see who killed you and more Uh, this is by rachelbythebay.com and it's an article about you know signals in Unix and Mm -hmm. um
1: telling you who did what. Yeah, so it starts off, uh, what happens when your process receives a signal? Assuming you care about such things, uh, you might have done a one-shot signal, sigfoo, and then some function in your code. And simple enough, uh, when you get a sigfoo, then control will jump into that function. It's up to you to deal with the rest while avoiding things that uh, should not be run in a signal handler. And there's a whole man page about that. Anyway, it gets uh, digs into other stuff and talks about our favorite SIG of all, SIG Info. Ah, um, uh, yes. So you should definitely uh, read up on this if you're interested in implementing SIG Info in your program. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, signals uh, are still useful, and especially SIG Info. Uh, I always, be, I'm always happy to have them, just to see what's going on if the
1: yeah, terminal uh, doesn't so, give me. and <coughs> their thing. example here is actually for finding out who killed your program. Uh, So she says, let's say your program was shut down by something that sent it a signal. Uh, Was it your init program? Was it your package manager? Was it a human? Uh, How do we know? Easily, we print the source of the signal. Uh, Later, when groveling through the logs uh, after your system goes down unexpectedly, you can see that UID 0, and you know who that is, uh, knocked your program down from PID you know, nine thousand whatever. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, whereas if you see it was done by UID one thousand, you're like, hmm, ah, and so on. <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: Check out that article and uh, yeah, learn the signals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we have and, um, you know, sig- info everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sick info. All the things. Um, Next up is uh, news from the NetBSD folks over at NetBSD Announce. So uh, there's a new core team member, Taylor Campbell, and the reason is that after nearly 13 years uh, on the NetBSD core team, Yamamoto Takeshi has decided to step down. Um, He has uh, been a regular contributor to NetBSD, and we would all like to thank him for his work, helping guide the project to where it is now it is safe to say that the NetBSD project would not be the same without uh, his quiet and effective advice and wisdom. So and Taylor Campbell will take his place on the core team and he's already well known for his contributions and is also the current board representative for the core team and they look forward to bringing um, his influence to bear on the way NetBSD's progress over the next few years. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, definitely... Um, Thanks for the efforts, and yeah, good luck to uh, Taylor Campbell, who is replacing him.
1: And then uh, over at uh, Foronix, they're pointing out some recent commits to Dragonfly BSD. Uh, They say Dragonfly 5.4 will deliver at least a few kernel-level performance improvements. It turns out just after hours of wrapping the latest BSD versus Linux benchmarks, uh, Matthew Dillon pushed a few performance tweaks to the Git tree of Dragonfly. The latest Dragonfly BSD uh, work catching our attention is removing the SMP bottleneck uh, with the UID info, uh, descriptors, and lockf. This change should uh, remove numerous global bottlenecks for different I.O. operations. Additionally, there's now a per-thread cache for file descriptors and pointers, or file pointers. Uh, there's also uh, other Dragonfly activity in Git this weekend. The commits do not comment on. Uh, about performance, but there are a bunch of changes that may packed things anyway.
0: That's mm. well, good to see. I mean, um, SMP is difficult to implement, and uh, yeah, fixes here and there are necessary if you uh, find some uh, kernel uh, regressions or some slowdowns. All right, yeah, Dragonfly getting SMP improvements, that's a good thing to here. And last but not least in our Beastie Bits, we have Writing FreeBSD Malware. So this is a, a recording that Sean Webb um, or a recording from yeah. a talk by Sean Webb and that, uh, um, he presented Carolina that topic kind of. mm-hmm. and he will uh, demonstrate a couple of things that you are probably not aware of or should Take a closer look at if you are in the malware prevention uh, business or in that camp. So definitely a good talk, and also um, the you know counterparts behind that are interesting to um, get to know. Those. What you also should get to know is the backups that TarSnap provides, because there are online backups for the truly paranoid. And sponsoring our feedback and questions section, so. You have done a backup, hopefully, recently. Is it secure? Well, hmm. so what you would want to do is you want to have the storage space and the biggest storage space is available in the cloud. But you want to be sure that everything that reaches the cloud is encrypted and that's what Tarsnap does for you. It locally encrypts everything that you will want to back up before it puts it in the cloud. And as long as you're the only person holding the key no one, especially not the TarSnap people themselves, cannot get to your data because they have no way of decrypting it.
1: Yeah. uh, So you run TarSnap. The command line looks just like the tar command line except for uh, instead of writing a file to your disk, it writes a backup with that name to the cloud. Uh, But inside, it's a different story. Uh, Instead of doing what tar does of just grabbing your files and sticking them together and maybe piping them to a compressor uh it reads your files then segments them based on uh, colin's custom algorithm that uh, finds the natural breaks in the file uh, where to create the blocks then it deduplicates that to see hey you've already uploaded a block that matches this to the cloud before so we'll just reference that instead of having to upload another copy so breaks up into chunks and deduplicates it and uh, keeps a local cache of all the hash of the blocks that you've uploaded. Then it compresses those chunks um, and then it encrypts and signs those compressed blocks and then sends them to the cloud. Uh, In this way, the encryption ensures that no one in the cloud can actually see what your data is and the signature allows you to ensure that when you get the data back, you know it hasn't been maliciously tampered with
0: exactly because who knows who is messing with your files in the cloud but since everything is uh, cryptographically secure you can be sure that no one first looked into the files and also didn't change them
1: yep uh and it means all that happens on your computer with source code you can audit uh, and that's something that no other backup company offers
0: mm-hmm. yeah so one more reason to check out TarSnap. All right, uh, feedback and questions time. We have a question uh, from Trolls in Denmark, writing, hey, Alan and Benedict, so far I've mostly been using ZFS with FreeBSD, but in the near future I will need it on Linux for one of my machines. From what I gather, when using ZFS with Linux, it is recommended to set the XATTR, which is Extended Attributes, option to SA to store Extended Attributes in Inodes. I noticed that FreeBSD does not support this option, so I'm wondering how this would affect my ability to use ZFS send to transfer data sets to my backup server, which runs FreeBSD with ZFS. Would the extent attributes just be ignored, or how would the system react?
1: That's a good question. I don't actually know the answer to that one off the top of my head. Yeah, so... Uh, it should be easy enough to test. I imagine the data is stored in ZFS in such a way that it'll persist, you just wouldn't use that data when you're on FreeBSD. But I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, but since it's not supported on FreeBSD, they might as well just ignore everything that's
1: extended well, it attribute depends, related. Because if you're then going to send it back to Linux, you would want those attributes to still be there, not just have been thrown away.
0: Sure. But we need to look at the code to see what the actual extended attributes option does on FreeBSD, if it does anything at all.
1: Right. Uh, but the easiest way probably is to just make a data set, uh, send it from Linux to FreeBSD, make sure that works, and then uh, send it back and make sure your attributes are still there.
0: Yep. That's a good test case before you do the, the regular setup and the regular
1: backup. But yes, uh, this is something I'll have to think about and look into. Not that I have time to do that right now.
0: Yeah, but yeah, we um, could take a look at that because. It's it's actually nice to get that compatibility between FreeBSD and ZFS. I was... Or not <laughs> FreeBSD and ZFS. <laughs> ZFS on FreeBSD with versus ZFS on Linux because the data exchange between the two um, pretty much before ZFS revolved around, you know, uh, creating a FAT32 file system or something. So... Or other Unix um, operating systems could read or set up an NFS server or something. But this could be... The upcoming um, file exchange format, especially when we look at the f- maybe someday becoming a stable version of uh, the ZFS on Windows port, mm-hmm. uh, that would be the universal file exchange, then which we never had before between the Unix world and a the Windows bit of world.
1: Slightly unrelated news, uh, but uh, Notepad on Windows finally got support for Windows line endings in the next update of Windows 10. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. Yeah, sorry we couldn't provide you with more information. Um, try it out for yourself um, and then yeah, I've
1: just report back. I never had to try that, so I don't know.
0: Yep. I mentioned to the people um, this week that I where I gave my ZFS tutorial, with all these options in ZFS, you probably won't uh, just use a handful of them. You can do so much with them, but most options you just leave alone and don't use them. Not because you couldn't, Um, But, yeah, it's just most people don't use all that big feature set that ZFS provides. Anyway, okay, up to the next question. Um, Sharing your screen uh, by Mike. uh, That's short and uh, sweet. Uh, It starts, Alan Benedict. Just wanted to remind you that VLC will capture the screen and serve it by RTMP, which could be another method for sharing one's screen. Also, there's guacamole. Yep. Uh, I know guacamole. uh, I think
1: these uh, were a response to a question we got from a user a couple weeks ago.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah, we should connect that or uh, get it.
1: uh, Yeah, um, I think OBS does it as well.
0: I need to look at guacamole. They seem to have a couple of updates since the last time I looked at it. Uh, But my use case uh, did change a little bit, uh, so it's not um, in the current focus that I need to get it um, but I should at least look at what's what's new in there cool thanks for the information and uh, yeah we'll uh, see what um, new sharing options will come up in the future so because there's always a need for new uh, kind of desktop sharing or screen sharing uh, next up is a um, message or a question we got about ad locking is it ad locking or ad blocking on FreeBSD I guess ad blocking yeah um, Goes like the following. Hi, guys. Great work with the show. Thank you. Uh, I've been a listener for over a year now. Oh, cool. I now uh, run FreeBSD Current on my Lenovo 500S and a fanless x86 router at home. I also have a FreeBSD Digital Ocean droplet, excellent, uh, that runs an IRC bouncer, Samba server, Quagga router, OpenVPN, and a Squid Proxy server. Oh, gee, I'm jealous now. Uh, (laughs) I try to stick with FreeBSD, even though it is difficult to get some things to run on it that were designed on Linux. I recently lost my temper and used Perl and Anger to rewrite the basic functionality of a Linux-only software called PyHole to run on FreeBSD. Well, that's good kind of Anger management, I would say. Sure. Uh, it is a DNS blocker that uses DNS masquerading and a host file to block ads. It currently uses CronTab to self-update every week and will keep up to date with the PyHole project. Hope this helps someone out there. Yeah, definitely give us a link to uh, the, the code. Mm-hmm. I guess most people will... a
1: bunch of people that are using uh, Pi-hole as their local DNS server. Basically, the idea is a local caching resolver that blocks a lot of uh, ad subdomains. Uh, by having yeah. a list and just making it so it doesn't load so that your uh, your browser doesn't load the ads. Yeah. Don't uh, hide and the it code. Network wide, right? And so you just uh, have your router set give out that IP as the DNS server and then everything in your network has ad blocker, you know, even your cell phone and so on. Mm. Yeah, cool. If
0: you um want you why not uh, share that code and make a port out of it maybe so other people can just uh, package install that. And use that in their own networks. Cool. Thanks for that information. I guess you will get a couple of more users after this show has been uh, out. And uh, yeah, cool. So this is a nice way of uh, giving something back uh, to the community. And last but not least is Brad uh, writing about recommendations for snapshot strategy. Oh, I see Alan already uh, getting onto that. Okay, here it goes. Uh, Hello, Alan and Benedict and JT. I figured out I would ask the experts on a question that has been kind of nagging at me for a while. What is each of your strategies for doing ZFS snapshots? This is on a desktop and a laptop currently i'm doing them once a day at 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. respectively these snapshots I think are then one rep- of
1: those was a.m. wasn't
0: it uh yeah probably because yeah just one hour away doesn't make sense yeah probably a.m. so 10 a.m. and 11 p.m. these snapshots are then replicated to my free nas however with zxfer and ZREPL being available it is fairly simple to snapshot more often uh, what i'm trying to work on in my head is how often one should or does back up or snapshot a desktop machine? Because um, for a critical server, it makes sense to snap every 10 minutes, save uh, one for an hourly, uh, save uh, one for the earliest on a daily, and so forth. But what makes sense for a desktop? I was thinking either hourly to daily to weekly, and so forth on possibly every six hours or four times a day to daily to weekly, etc. Thoughts?
1: Yeah, Um, Because ZFS snapshots are so low cost there's not much reason not to create more snapshots uh, especially if they're being managed automatically Um, there are many times where you've just run a command and then are like I wish I had taken a snapshot first well if you take one every 10 minutes then maybe you probably already have a snapshot uh, from at least only a couple of minutes ago Uh, or oops I accidentally just screwed up this file Uh, you know accidentally um pasted the wrong thing and it erased a bunch of text and wasn't able to undo it in the editor or whatever. Uh, Having a snapshot is great. Um, So yeah, on my laptop I take quite a few snapshots. Um, The nice thing with uh, some of the tools for creating snapshots, like I think ZFS tools, is you can set a different policy for different data sets. So maybe your home directory, you want to take snapshots frequently because stuff changes there all the time. But the rest of the whole system, you only need a couple of times, you know, twice a day or something is fine. Um, and, you know, you have the options there of, of taking certain snapshots much more frequently and other ones less frequently. But for your system, you might want to keep the snapshots longer. Whereas your home directory, you know, if I screwed up a file a week, uh, you know, a week later, if I haven't noticed, it's probably fine or whatever. Mm. So you can do very different frequencies. Uh, on my servers yeah i take every 15 minutes keep six or 12 hours of of full every 15 minutes um and then i keep two or four a day for a couple of weeks and then uh daily for like eight weeks Mm. so i use the um ZFS
0: Tools script by uh, Brian Drury. I want to check out the ZFSnap or snap 2, which is mostly or uh, written in shell only. Uh, I haven't just had the time to do that yet, but this um, ZFS Tools has been used for at least two years now on my servers, and it's just fire and forget. I even wrote a an Ansible script just to install that and uh, do the necessary um, entries in uh, crontab. And I basically use the one that are described in Michael uh, Dexter, not Michael Dexter, Michael Lucas's blog post or in the ZFS book. And it's, as Alan said, just set it and forget it, and but be happy when you need it. The snapshots are there. Snapshot early, snapshot often. If you don't have any changes or not many changes between the snapshots, it's just a couple of bytes. It's just yeah. nothing.
1: Uh, the performance difference between having two snapshots and 100 snapshots on your laptop is zero except for when you're actually listing the snapshots. And in, yeah. and even hundreds isn't gonna hurt you. Mm. You know, I have at work we have servers with three or four hundred data sets, all with you know, fifty snapshots in total. Uh, and we're taking new snapshots of all of those data sets every ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, and they're being replicated off site and then cleaned up.
0: Yeah, the the rotation feature is nice yeah. so that you don't have to worry about it. I also take snapshots out of that uh, separate thing because sometimes I want to have a snapshot that says semester start because I want to roll back to that specific one to know that the software has been installed but the students yes. haven't messed um, with it yet.
1: And so this gets to uh, my laptop setup as well. Uh, I have a laptop I use. I, when I'm at home, I have desktops. I don't really use my laptop. Uh, but it's my lifeline when I go to a conference. So... The base system gets snapshots all the time and has boot environments, but there's also my work directory, which normally lives on my NAS at home. But before every conference, I will snapshot it, replicate it to my laptop, take my laptop with me, work on code at a conference and on the airplane and so on. And then when I'm done, I snapshot on my laptop, incremental, replicate it back to my NAS, and then switch back to working on my NAS in the laptop goes back in the backpack and waits for the next conference. <laughs> uh, and that's, I love doing that. And it also means, you know, I can <laughs> undo things when things go bad. Uh, often, like, I have the, uh, the ZFS, Z standard compression work, and I just uh, started working on catching it up to the latest head, because commits that happened in the meantime. I Don't lose that. Before I do, well, I always take a snapshot before I do the SVN up to make sure that if I screw up a merge conflict, I'll be able to undo it and try over again. Mm. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you use Git, you're definitely going to want snapshots so you can undo things.
0: Yeah. And also, um, for a desktop, you might want to check out uh, Lumina because it has a nice um, time slider in the file uh, manager. Uh-huh. And also, think about the, each data set. Do you need to really snapshot your user ports directory? Probably if you're not, not developing Unless ports. Unless you're a
1: ports committer. And then you're like, ah, I actually would like to be able to undo the changes I just did You know, when I ran this said script to update you know, 400 ports. Uh, and now I need to undo that, but not lose the last four hours of work. Uh, snapshots are the best. Yeah, definitely, yeah.
0: So yeah, snapshot more um, and be safe than sorry. Yep. All right. Uh, that's it for this week. Again, mm-hmm. send us your questions that you have, everything that you found about BSD on the web or questions, uh, comments that you have about the show to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll cover it in a future episode. Thanks yes, for watching.
1: And a uh, special reminder, if you watch live, uh, we'll having a special bonus episode on uh, Friday, May 11th. Uh, at the regular time Uh, so tune in and watch us live be part of the chat room that helps make up the show Uh, and that's at uh, at 1800 utc Uh, and you can uh, check it out at bsdnow.tv